there are um, sometimes when it's to, be, to best appreciate something, you need to dissect it and really see the innards of how it works and just really look closely at it. And other times when you kind of just, to, in order to best appreciate it, you kind of just need to step back. You know, when, in high school, they, they just dissect frogs and stuff. And it's fascinating because you got to see all the little stuff that works, you know, and it's really cool and you can appreciate a frog. But in order to really appreciate a frog in its frogginess, you kind of sometimes just need to watch frogs and do what they do with it, you know. And you don't, so there's ways to appreciate both ways. I've, my, my brother's going to see the Grand Canyon um, in a week or so. And you can appreciate it by studying the strata and looking and doing the, you know, geology of it. But if that's all you do, you miss something. Because if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know that in order to appreciate it in another way, you just have to stand back. You have to just take in the wonder of it. God's like that. Sometimes you, get, you dissect what he's doing. You dissect even his word, and you see the intricacies of how he works. And sometimes you just need to stand back, see the wonder of what he does. I will bet you that if you talk to the people who went in Venezuela, they can tell you stories about how they've seen probably both of those. Now today, we're, gonna, we're in, in the book of 2 Corinthians this summer, and I'm going to invite you to take a look there, if you would. So we're in 2 Corinthians 10 today. And what we're going to do with 2 Corinthians 10 is we're going to take, we're not going to dissect. We've been doing a lot of dissecting in 2 Corinthians. Today, we're going to take a step back and just kind of let it see the big picture of what it's saying and appreciate something about God and how he works and some truth based on that. So again, 2 Corinthians 10 is where we are. Now, let me just give you a little context about this, and then we're going to jump in and just take a look at a couple snapshots of it. 2 Corinthians 10 is kind of a transitional section of this letter that Paul wrote. Uh, there, are three, there, there are kind of three sections of it, for 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, he's talking about past events and how he's been attacked and his visits, and we've done a lot of looking at that. And then in, verse, in chapters 8 and 9, which we just looked at the last few weeks, there's a present thing going on, this collection for the saints that he's addressing. Now, from 10 to 12, he's going to talk about a future event, and that is when he's going to come and visit these folks. He's going to address some of what he has seen in their midst, and he's getting ready for that. And so behind that, remember that there's this constant backdrop that Paul has been dealing with with this, this group, very, very similar to what you encounter in our culture today where you've got a culture that, that says, uh, that, that celebrates success and upward mobilization and, and prowess and articulation and people who, who just really excel and, and self-made men. You've got a culture that does that. Then you've got a religious culture and some leaders come, who come in and said, that's what we need to be doing as God followers. That's who's good. You've got to look for who's good at that kind of stuff. They looked at Paul the apostle and they said, that guy doesn't qualify. They've established themselves as some people who were very trained in the ways of the culture. They were very articulate. They had great displays of power. In chapter 11, they're going to be called super apostles. That's kind of what they call themselves. Super apostles. And they say, Paul doesn't have the credibility. He doesn't have the credentials. In the name of God, he's writing back to them. He's going to come visit them again. He's going to deal with this. He has, and he says, this is a big deal, you guys, because you have been misled about who God is and how he works. All through 2 Corinthians, he's been addressing it. Now he's going to come to town and he's going to address the ones who are still lingering. So this is, so, so all through this, uh, he's been trying to deal with the fact that, that he is being attacked for something that he says is, is, is not accurate. And, and one commentator says, Paul's reputation 
didn't help him in the eyes of the people because they looked at his withdrawal when he, when, he, when he was attacked during his previous visit, by his changing of his plans, by his writing of a tearful letter, by his refusal to employ the professional rhetoric of his day. He had a lot of reasons for them to say, this guy isn't so great. He's a pretender. But all through the thing, he has, he's had this theme that says, you've got to understand something about the true God and how he works and where he works in people's lives. He is not about you making yourself better. He is not about you, you, you getting more power. He's about you actually being weak. That's where he works. You want to see how God, the true God works, look for weakness. That's who he empowers. That's where he's at work. And so you see these, we've looked at these passages along, but take a look at some of them. This is what he summarized in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God, because he made us to be captives, leads us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, everywhere we go, he uses us to tell others about the Lord to spread the good news like a sweet perfume. We're captives. We've been subdued by him. We're not victors. We're captives. That's who the leaders for God are. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 11 and, uh, 7 and 11. But he says, we have this treasure, the treasure of, of knowing God and being forgiven and being made children of God. We're carrying it around in jars of clay, real vulnerable vehicles, in order to show that the all-surpassing power that comes is from God, and it's not from us. He goes on to say, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his, his life may be revealed in our, in our mortal body. Understand, we're just, this is a review. Paul is saying, everything you're hearing from your culture about how God is going to give you power, and you've got to look for people with a lot of moxie and a lot of pizzazz and a lot of skill, that, that's not representing how God works. This is how God works. Because it's not about our glory or our advancement, it's about His. And then we got to 2 Corinthians 8 9 a few weeks ago where he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. See, even about Him. Though He was rich, for your sakes He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. There's a, a contrasting theme that's really, really important to the, to the degree that Paul says, the people who are telling you about Jesus and how He works this way, they're, not, they're teaching you another gospel. I mean, this is serious business. You've got to reject that. And now I'm coming to town. Now, he's seen a lot of people who have responded to that. A lot of pe- he, this, this letter is written to two different audiences. There are those who have repented. He's writing to the repentant to restore them and say, it's okay. You're, you're coming along. It's all right. You might have been misled, but you've been repentant. That's good. And then he's also talking about the rebel- to the rebellious. In chapter 10, 11 and 12, he's going to address, I'm coming to talk to, the, about, to the, those who are still in rebellion. And the way uh, Scott Hafeman, one author, writes it, he goes, the ambassador of reconciliation, that's what Paul's been, the ambassador of reconciliation now becomes the warrior against rebellion. He's going to step it up there. He's going to address that second group. You've still got people misleading you, he says. I'm coming to deal with them. Get ready. So as we take this big view of chapter 10, there's just two questions we're going to ask. And try to get some answers to. And the first question is this. So which way is the way of God? Is it gentleness or is it firmness? How Because they, they're hearing two different stories about who, how God works. How he speaks. Is it gentleness or is it firmness? I'll look at chapter 10, verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul. The one who he's going to quote him now. He's almost kind of being sarcastic one who's timid he's the one who's been called timid when face to face with you but bold when away they've accused him of that saying 
Look, this guy, he's, he's, he's all full of venom when he's writing, when he's at a safe distance, when he shows up. He's, he's real meek. He's real gentle. So, again, how do you accept what... He's a fake. He's, he's what... It's in a Chinese proverb that, that from which we get the, the, the term paper tiger. You've heard that, right? A paper tiger is, is something that appears strong or fierce, but in reality... It's being all show and no substance, weak, nothing to be feared. One who appears tough on the surface, but in reality is a wimp. They're going, yeah, this guy, yeah, he writes his letters like he's all tough. Then he shows up and he's a wuss. Sorry, is that okay to use that word? Paul says, yeah, okay, this is me talking. I'm the one. The, come, the one who's timid when he's with you, but all bold when he's away, this is me talking. And I'm going to say something to you based on what he calls the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So the accusation is that he's a paper tiger. The answer, the answer to the question, so which one is of God? Is it gentleness or is it firmness? And Paul's going to say, there's both. And both are present in the character of Jesus and both are present in the character of God and both are going to represent, are those who represent him or both are going to show up. And he's going to appeal to the nature of God that's presented in Jesus. So he says, it's by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, when he, when he uses that, he's invoking this statement, a couple of statements that Jesus made about himself. And the most, probably the, the one that might be most clearly in his mind is Matthew chapter 11. When, when Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you. And he says, Here, here's what I'm like. I'm humble and gentle and you'll find rest for your souls. So he says, okay, there's a part of Jesus that's very, very gentle, very meek. The word meek does not mean weak. The, the word meek has been called some say the best description of it is slow to anger. Jesus is slow to anger. So there's a part of those who represent him who are going to be gentle. They're going to be slow to anger. And as soon as you hear that phrase, slow to anger, I want to, I want to condition you to think this way. God created a little subtitle for himself when he introduced himself to Moses. Moses said, I don't even know what God you are. Do you have a name? He says, Yes, my name is I am. Yahweh, we call it, I, the I am. And, and Moses asked God if he can know more about him. And, and in, in Exodus 34, Moses asked the chance if he can see him. And God presents himself and he hides it in the cleft of the rock and he holds it so he, he can't, doesn't want to destroy him by showing him his full glory. And he goes by. But what often gets missed in that is that when God did that, he actually made a proclamation. It's kind of like, forgive the analogy, you ever see in prize fights, heavyweight championship fights, and they're introducing people to center ring, and they say, now in this corner, and they're going to say who the name is, but they don't just say the name. They give a bunch of titles, right? They say he's weighing in to 240 pounds, and they say what his record is, and then they'll say things like the master of disaster, the, the, the dancing destroyer, the, the king of sting, the prince of punch, the, the, the count of Montefisto. God does that for himself. When he says, here's who you're dealing with. Here's who I'm going to show you. He has a description of himself. So I want you to see this because when he, when he says, when, when he uses the word, I'm meek, Jesus, and the word means slow to anger, it invokes this statement that God made about himself. This is Exodus 3, 4, 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh. That's what that is. Yahweh, Yahweh. And here's the subtitle. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
If I could get you to memorize that, I, I would. Because that's the title God gives to himself. Yahweh, the one who is. I am who I am. And then he says, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, faithfulness. Now, here's one of the reasons you know that that becomes the title of God. It get, that little phrase, that little business card that gets handed out in the name of who God is, gets used all through the Old Testament then. It shows up several times in Psalms, in prayers, in like Psalm 86. It says, but you, O Lord, are compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Several of the prophets, when they're representing him, Jonah uses it. Uh, Nehemiah uses it. I I think Joel uses it. It, It's used over and over again. It's it's how God describes himself. He's full of these things. And then he goes on to say, oh, but don't think I'm not going to punish the wicked. I'm very, very capable of that too. Now, Jesus shows up. And and in John 1, when it describes Jesus to us, and it says, we beheld the word, the one who translates God for us, the one who shows us God in physical form. We beheld the word, and it says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And then it says this, full of grace and truth. Goes on to say three verses later in John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When God presents himself and how he works, he says, there's this very kind, slow to anger part of me. There's this grace part of me, but there's also truth. I will, I, I, I will represent both of those in your life. That picture of Jesus is presented by Paul set here. And he says, that's the nature of God. And those who represent him are going to represent both those. So which is it? Which, is, which, which ways of God? Is it gentleness or is it firmness? When you deal with, I mean, it, think in real terms. If you want God involved in your life right now, if you'd like him involved in your situation, you want, you want to know what his ways are, what should you expect? Should you expect gentleness from him or should you expect firmness from him? And his answer is going to be yes. You're going to get them both. Because I'm full of grace and I'm full of truth. I would be a disservice. It wouldn't be fully who God is to give you only one or the other. So Paul says he has a purpose in coming. His purpose, he kind of describes it in verse 8. He says, even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority God gave us, and here's what it's for. It's for building you up rather than pulling you down. I'm not going to be ashamed of that. So even when he says hard things, and, and that phrase for building you up rather than pulling you down, he's probably borrowing from the prophet um, Jeremiah, who when he went to God's people, he used a very, very similar phrase, building you up rather than tearing you down. He's saying, look, when I come to you, even if I have to be firm with you, even if there are hard things that you need said to you, you need to understand that the purpose of that is always to build you up, always to build you up. It's not to tear you down. So God is both gentle and he's firm, but always in both of them, He's got a purpose behind it. It's to build something in you. It's to make something better in you. It's to make you more into what he intended you to be. Both those are necessary. Now, that's in stark contrast to what these people have been hearing from other spiritual leaders. And by the way, it's in stark contrast to what you hear from spiritual leaders a lot in our culture. 
Because these spiritual leaders were really, really focused on making you successful, on making you stronger and better, I'm impressing you into being, into being uh, different kinds of people. So he says in verse 14, he's going to actually use military warfare. He goes, I'm coming after these people and I'm coming like a soldier to knock them down. It's that important that you need to learn this. When I come into town, I'm coming like a soldier. And all of these terminology happens starting in verse 3. Or let's, let's start verse 2. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we're living by the standards of the world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. That phrase actually literally means according to the flesh in contrast to the Spirit of God. Now the weapons we're fighting with, They're not weapons of the world. They're not fleshly weapons. They're not the typical stuff you see in your culture that people assume is how things get done. On the contrary, they have divine power, and all this is military terms, to demolish strongholds. The bastions of of where the the, the walls are the highest and the thickest, where where they're most guarded, the stronghold areas, the safest places, to demolish those things. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, meaning the the truth about who God is. And then we're going to take captives. It's military terms. We're going to take prisoners of war. And the prisoner of war is every philosophy, every kind of way of thinking. That that is uh, so that every thought is, is made obedient to Christ. And we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Once your obedience is complete. He's writing to them saying, I, I'm coming in to attack the ones who are going to rebel, but I'm giving you a chance. Giving a chance to see who, who God really is and how he really works. These are, they're, there's typical ways of trying to influence people. And the typical ways are you impress them. You inspire them. You sell them. You make them feel good. You are subject to that every day of your life. People are always trying to tell you why you should buy their product or do their thing, but it's also in church stuff. It's in Christian stuff. It's in, it, it's in God's stuff. Here's a really simple way to become more like God. Here's a program. Here's a little system that you put this in place and you do this for 30 days or 60 days and you're going to be more godly. You're going to be closer. Or a whole lot of times says you're going to get God to do stuff for you. You will get God to bless you. You give a certain amount, you make a certain kind of commitment, and God is compelled. He has to come through for you because that's what God is. Because God is kind and, and meek, and he's at your disposal. And, and Paul says, you know what? That is so wrong, I'm going to slash it down. You need to understand what the knowledge of God really is. This is not about you. This is not about you becoming the best person you can be. You will become a better person when you get in line behind Jesus Christ. You will. You'll become stronger. You'll grow. But it's, the purpose is always the kingdom of God, the glory of God, submitting to God. He's looking for weakness from you, not strength. It's so, such a profound difference. He says, I, I'm going to take captive every other thought. We're not, we, we're not going to tolerate that being said in, around where the, the people of God are. This is very, very strong language. So these strongholds that he's talking about, I think, are referring to the mentality that the Corinthian people were hearing. That, that you, you can have self-confidence, you can be self-made, you can be self-improved. You can be transformed by putting the focus on yourself and your needs and how to get God to meet them. And, and Paul comes in and says, it's no amount of your willpower is going to accomplish that. 
Can I say that again? Listen, no amount of your willpower is going to transform your life. No amount of your personal commitment and effort is going to change you from the inside out. It is weakness God works through. It's submission. It's surrender. He brings it about as a... It's a side effect of being rightly connected with Him. So there's an, so there's application in this. And we're just taking the big picture of it. We're not looking at every... We're not dissecting every verse here today. That there is no self-elevating uh, component in God's message. And the question is, so which, how does God approach you? Is He gentle or is He firm? Both are in the ways of God, but always for the purpose of building you up, of making you more like Him, of accepting... Uh, he's going to give you acceptance and he's going to give you challenge. There's this great proverb that, uh, that says this on a horizontal level. And it says, uh, this is Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. It says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. This is horizontal. This is between people on earth. It's better to be rebuked openly by someone than, than to be hidden, have a hidden love from them. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. An enemy multiplies kisses. Sometimes this happens around here. We have, we have people who come in and, they, and we tell people all the time, this is a place where people are struggling and messed up and you can be accepted here. Absolutely be accepted. We will meet you. We are not going to judge you for where you are, what your practices are. You, this, is, this is open to all sinners to come on in here. And people come in and say, oh, it's so nice to be here. And then something happens. They get connected a little bit. And then people who, in the name of God, in cell groups or in other places, they move toward that person. And they start to turn the light on some things. They say, you know, we want to help you address something in your life. There's something that's not right in your life. There's something that, out of love, we're going to come to you and tell you that this, God wants to change that in you. That needs turned from. That's, it's debilitating you. And when that happens, there are people, sometimes I hear the complaints. Sometimes the complaints go elsewhere. But people say, I, I thought, what is this place? I thought you said... This is a place of love. I thought you said this was a place of acceptance. I thought you said that I, was, I would be okay here. You're, you've lied to me, in, in essence, is what's being said. The answer to that is the same thing Paul says. We, no, we love you. Love is comprised of grace and truth, not just one or the other. And a friend who injures somebody in the name of making them healthier that's a true friend. That's better than the kisses, multiplied kisses from an enemy. There are people who say, oh, my best friends are the ones that, who, who they know about something and they say, we will never speak of this. Never bring that up. Never address that. And I say that that's not a true friend. Not in the biblical sense of the term. And that's not the character of God who loves and builds up. Sometimes your best friends in the world are the ones who are going to say the hardest things to you. Things they don't want to say, they wish they didn't have to say, but they do it for the purpose of building up. Even if in the short term, it feels like attack, feels like exposure, it feels uncomfortable. Paul says, that's what God does. That's what we do. That's what you need to be ready to have happen. Did you notice in verse, look at just verse 10 and 11. Some say his letters are weighty and forcible, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. 
Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we're absent, we will be in our actions when we're present. You might have heard it through a letter, but you understand he's saying, no, it's still who we are. You're going to get that. You're going to get both when we're in, in, in person. I'll just pause and ask you this question. Are you... Who is God using in your life to be His instrument to move you closer to Him? You know who it is? It's somebody who's going to have both those elements there. They're going to give you grace and gentleness. They're going to give you firmness and truth. What kind of friend have you been? What kind of friend do you need to be? That's what we're called to be. That's who Paul is. Which ways of God? They're both there. Now, here's the second question. Who represents God most? Is it the one who impresses in the name of God or the one who gives substance in the name of God? Now, there's this accusation. Again, we just saw it in verse 10. Look at it again. Some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. Wow. You know, my, my greatest hope is that when you go and tell people about what it's like at our church, you don't use phrases like that. Yeah. Nice place. Music's great. The speaker is kind of unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. But, you know, you should come anyway. But that's what they said about him. He's unimpressive. And in their thinking, unimpressive meant ineffective. It meant you didn't represent the power of God. And then they, these, guys, these same people set themselves up. And look at verse 12. Paul says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. He's talking about the people who are saying this about him. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. Now, you see what he's talking about there? There are people there who are saying, no, you know how, here's how you know that God is with somebody. And now they establish the metric. In fact, the word metric is, the word for metric is used there. They've set up a metric to determine who really, who really has the, the credential of God. And so they've set up their own criteria and then they say, see, oh, we meet that criteria. They're measuring themselves by their own standard. Now, this happens all the time in advertising, in infomercials, in things that you've seen where people say a study was done. And it asked all these people what's effective. And what they don't tell you is the study was done by the employees of the company. They asked, do you like the, what we're making? Yeah, we like it. Do you know that 98% of people surveyed said our, our thing works? Yeah, well, who did you ask? You set your own standard, and then you said you met it. I got an example that you're not going to believe. This is not... A farce, this is a true commercial. A true commercial for, for a golf club. And the golf club is called the Euro Club. This is not a farce, this is a true commercial. And, and I want you to take a look at it. It's a real deal. I looked it up. You can order one of those. Now, if you study it, if you go to their website and you go to order that, they will say some things about the effectiveness of the Euro Club. And they'll say that it was designed by a board-certified urologist. And that 
and that certified urologists have approved of its work. What they don't tell you when you look further is the board certified urologist is the guy who owns the company. He set a standard to say a board certified urologist came up with this and thinks it's a good idea. You should too. He set the standard. He keeps the standard. You know, I don't need a board certified urologist to give me an empty beer can. I can use that too. Okay, can I draw you back? (laughs) These guys have set their own measure, and then they've said, and look, we're doing it. And here, according to uh, a scholar from the who studies that era, Arthur Dewey, he he had four things that were the Corinthians uh, teachers were established as their measure for whether a person spoke for God or not. Here they have four things are. Letters of recommendation, who you've known, who speaks for you. You know, who do you, who do you hobnob with? I got these formal letters. We heard about that a couple of weeks ago, what, how important those letters were. Second was ecstatic experiences where they produce spiritual feelings of exhilaration in the crowd among them. Third thing was wonder working, very similar, doing miracles or displays of corralling God's power. And the fourth thing was rhetorical, and this may have been the most important in that, in that culture, rhetorical and interpretive competence. Masters of speech. They, could, they were compelling they were competent. They were convincing. They made sense. They drew people in. Those, that was the standard. They said, that's the standard of God. Oh, and by the way, guess who keeps that standard? We do. So you should listen to us because we're from God. Now look back at what Paul says again and, and let that be, help, you, help you see what he says here. Verse 12, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves... They're not wise. We, however, verse 13, we're not going to boast beyond proper limits. And what are the proper limits? But we will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. So what Paul's saying is here is, well, let me just say it this way. There's an equivalent in our day. There are people who want you to listen to them and say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the formula for knowing God better. I'm going to give you the way to make your life better in the name of God. And, and that in our day and age tends to be, you look at the people, these are people we give platforms to, the rate of growth of their ministry, the audience that they've got, perhaps they're on television, whether they're published, whether they have a degree of celebrity, if they built an empire that's important, they, those who want you to, feel, to look good and feel good in the name of God, and people flock to those folks. There's a reason people flock to those. Uh, Superman is now 75, we're celebrating 75 years since the first comic, comic was created. It was created, though, by two guys in the Cleveland area in 1933, two, two young guys. When those guys were interviewed and when they talked about it, they said something that wasn't that wasn't published as much about why they created Superman, where Superman came from, and he evolved in their thinking too. And, and it comes into this whole realm of why we're so fascinated with superheroes, and you know we are. I mean, all the, the, the biggest movies are, are who's got a special power, who's got something that's different. Why are we so fascinated with that? And some people speculate, sociologists speculate about what, or even psychologists about why we do that. 
And some have said, well, it's because of this quest for power. We want to have, we, we wish we could have that power. I, I wish I could be James Bond. I wish I could be Batman or Superman. I wish I could have those kinds of powers. But others have said it, it's not so much power as it is this desire to, eat, to, to not be powerless. To have some kind of control in my life. And then the degree to that is what the word that gets used is to be special. I wish I could just be a little bit special. These two guys who created uh, Superman, Jerry uh, Siegel and Joe Schuster, they were American Jews. And if you think about what was happening about to Jews worldwide in the 1930s, they said a little about it. People who knew them said more about it that said a lot of what came out in Superman they were hearing, here, let me just read, they were hearing stories about their families in Germany and Eastern Europe being captured, persecuted. They created Superman, borrowing from a, a Jewish legend, as a way to alleviate their feeling that they were powerless to stop the suffering of the Jews in Europe. And then this author says, since then superheroes have continued to feed our need to believe that there are people who are better than others, people who will do the right thing in the right ways, in ways that we are unable The, the people who were talking to the Corinthian people said, you, you want to look for where God is at work? Okay, look for superhero types. Look for super apostles. Look for somebody who's doing what other people can't do. They, got, they, can con, they conjure up a power from God that no one else can do. They are slick and they're articulate and they can, they can wow the crowd and they can, you can feel something when they speak. There's something there's power in it. Look at the wonders they can do. And they contrasted that with Paul the Apostle. And the earliest description we have of Paul the Apostle from a first uh, century uh, extra-biblical account, Acts of Paul and, and Thecla, says this about Paul. He's a man of middling size. His hair was scanty. His legs were a little bow-legged. His knees were projected or far apart. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met. The unibrow. And his nose was somewhat long. This is not an impressive guy. This is a guy, by his own admission, was not very trained or articulate. Now he's coming up against the super apostles and he's saying, so who's credentialed by God? Who do you listen to? Who, who has that authority? And his answer is, well, he, this is, look at verse 7. There's a bad translation in the NIV. It says you're looking only on the surface of things. The, the better translation grammatically of that from the Greek as look at what's right in front of you. Look at the body of work that has been assigned to us. And he says, what we just read earlier, he says, we're not going to make the ba- basis of our boast other stuff. We're going to say we were assigned something and how did we do? How was our faithfulness in what we were assigned? Where was he assigned? In Acts 9, he was, Paul was interrupted as a, as a Christian killer by the risen Jesus and said, I'm going to take you to the Jews, but I'm, I'm going to take you beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. I'm going to take you to a world that hasn't heard of me. And he assigned them the, 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 uh, the, the known world of his day, the Greek world. Corinth was in that assigned field. And Paul says, look what's right in front of you. You, you are believers. Why are you believers? You know why you're believers? Because God made an assignment to somebody and the person filled the assignment. The person just went and did what was faithful. 
in the sight of God right there. You're you're even standing there questioning me about what Christians because I did what I was called to do. And he and then he, he he implies this other thing where he says not just the proper limit of the field that's assigned to us. He goes, we're, uh, it, verse fourteen says it would be the case if we'd not come to you because we did come to you. And then verse fifteen says, neither did we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Well, he squarely got these other guys. In, in his sights, he goes, these are people who are telling you, yes, you're Christians, but you should be better Christians because, the, because you're insufficient. He goes, I, they're building on somebody else's foundation. That's not how you give credibility. And then he goes on to say the main thing here. He's talking about what more God can do, and he says, but the focus isn't on what we've done or what we can do. It's what God's going to continue to do and who gets the credit. Verse 16, he says, we, the end of verse 15 says, we're hoping that our activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in regions beyond you. We don't want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but and now he's going to quote Jeremiah again. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He's invoking Jeremiah, a very famous passage in Jeremiah 9, verse 23, it says this. I think you'll see it. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. People give big, big amounts of money to universities or hospitals or schools or whatever. And then they name their auditorium after them, or there's a road named after them. You've seen that, you know. There's now I don't want to pick on everybody who's got something named after them, but there are some people who are very, very insistent. I we're going to give you from the estate this tens of millions of dollars, but in order to do that, it's got to be known as the Tom Bernardo Center or something. Fill in the name of the person who gave it. Paul basically said, so so you got. So-and-so ministries, these super apostles have probably got super apostle Joe ministries going on in Corinth. And Paul the Apostle says, this is how you'll know who's credentialed. They don't ask for naming rights. (laughs) There's only one name that goes up. It is the name of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the Alpha and Omega. Jesus the Son of God. That's who it is. Let, Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord not in commending themselves. I want to tell you a promise, and if, you, if I ever break this promise, you can come hunt me down and you can beat me to a pulp. I will never ask for anything to be named after me. Not that anybody would want to. I don't want to, I don't want, when I die, I don't want the, you know, the, the youth room to say the Bernardo Memorial, whatever. I don't want that. I'm not looking for it. I should never want it. You want to know who you can trust, who you, you listen, look for people who are okay to labor in obscurity, whose name doesn't have to be on stuff, that the only name that gets it brought up is the powerful name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. That's who you watch. Occasionally, I've got to be careful saying this, occasionally we have people come into our body here and they're very, very complimentary. And they say, there is a liveness there. We say that it's very humbling and very gratifying to hear that. 
There's a seriousness about walking with God. There's a transformation going on. There's something really cool going on at this church. And when they say that, I'm always very, very touched and grateful. But sometimes what happens then is that there's somebody who's come from another background, another set of ministries, another church, another city, somewhere else, and they say, you know what you ought, the only thing you need now is? And they present something that they say we're missing. If you would just do this, then you would be complete. Now, I'm, I don't want to be arrogant enough that I can't say we can't learn and we can't grow. But sometimes the very thing that they tell us that we're missing is the thing that we're, we have become who we are because we don't do that thing. We don't pressure people to go through that mill. We don't require that of people. And we say to them, you know, if you want to come be part of what we're doing, great, but please don't try to change us. Because if you do that, you're trying to build on other people's foundation. If you want to do that, knock yourself out. Do it somewhere. But right here, this is not the platform where you're going to get to do that. Now, I'm saying that carefully, right? Because I don't want us to be unlearning. And we're always trying to grow. We're always trying to get better at what we do. We will listen to people. We'll listen to, to those who are going the same direction. But when it, that comes, it comes from people who don't really know what God is to where we are. They just want to make it into something else. Paul says, you want to know who represents God? They're not trying to go in to where somebody else has built a foundation and take what they've built and, and take credit for it. Our friends at Campus Crusade or crew have this happen all the time. I talk to the guys on, on campus at OSU and other places, and they say, you know, we got this ministry, and we train these uh, young people, and they become, up, they, they, became, they become excited about their faith, and they grow in their disciples, and then we get church planters who come in, and they go, ooh, imagine what I could do with all those people. And when I came into town, and I met with those guys, I made a promise to them. I said, we're not going to try to draw those people. You, they are fruit of your ministry. We want them to flourish in that ministry. We're glad for that to happen. It is not our job to come in and build on somebody else's foundation. Paul says, you want, you want to know who to listen to? You want to know who represents God? Look at the people who have been assigned a, a, a field and they're faithful in it. And they've done stuff for God. They have made progress. It's substantive. They haven't just impressed people. They've, they've accomplished substance in the name of God. That's who you should should look for. That's who you should listen to. Let it be the one who is faithfully served out of weakness to the glory of Christ. You want to live on a personal level? You know who should, you should pay attention to when they speak into your life? Pay attention to the person who's walked through the journey with you, who's been through there through the good times and the hard times and comes up alongside you. And even if they have hard things to say, say, I need to speak with you about this. That's who you listen to. They've been faithful in the field God has assigned to them that's the one who he says the lord commends now let me just ask you this as we close we're going to sing a song hear a little bit about opportunity and then go just one more view from this from a distance paul says he was assigned a field and he should be judged based on how his faithfulness in that field i believe that that's not just true of missionaries it's not just true of pastors i believe that that is true of every follower of Jesus Christ, that he has placed you in a field, a scope, a, a realm in which you function. It may be just the other moms of infants around your neighborhood. It may be people who you work alongside. It may be people who you go to school with. He's assigned you a field. 
What does it look like for you to faithfully elevate the name of Jesus Christ in that field so that when you're done, people can look and say, the influence that's been made here has been made among other people by a person who was assigned here and they've been faithful. Who is it that you can reach out to in the name of God out of your weakness? Not out of your superlative skills. What, where's he, what's the field he's got you in? What does that assignment look like for you? And would you just, along with Paul, say, we'll elevate the name of Jesus Christ and let God commend us, but we're just going to be faithful in that field. Much more we could say. That's the big, long view. Let's pray. In a minute, we're just going to continue praying like this and we're going to sing one song. We're going to hear about another opportunity for people to form a group to live this out. But where you are in your heart, would you just incline your heart toward God? If you've got something to present to Him, then do it. Maybe you just want to thank Him for the, the influences in your life who have shown you grace and truth. Maybe you want to tell them you're ready and willing for people to have that influence on you again or you're to, or to be one of those. Maybe it's just you presenting yourself and saying, you've assigned me to a field of influence. And I want to say yes. I'm willing to represent you. I'm willing to speak for you. I'm willing to live for you, to exemplify who you are in the midst of that. Would you just, from your own heart, express that if you are ready to. And God, as we keep praying, as we say something in song, let it be true for what comes out of our lips here represents our hearts. That what we hear is not just a song, but it's a prayer from all of us that we're ready to say it to you. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus.